As you already know, we are beginning a new series of studies this morning in the New Testament book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me please to Revelation chapter 1, as we're reading together verses 9 through 20. Revelation chapter 1, and you'll find it in page 1912 of the church Bible. Page 1912, Revelation chapter 1, as we read from verse 9 to verse 20. The Apostle John is writing the book of Revelation, and we're breaking into chapter 1, as you know, at verse 9. John writes these words, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. And I do trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Now, as we come to study the book of Revelation this morning... You will know that each Sunday we produce sermon study notes with headings and subheadings there and scripture reference and the title. But this morning, for the first time, we are trying a new approach because on the reverse of your study notes, you will find there, quite literally, some study notes. And those study notes will give you background to the author of this epistle, the date on which it was written, the occasion, the purpose, the literary forum, and at the bottom you have seven churches of Revelation and a map of where they were, and you can still go and see the ruins of these places today because they are in present-day Turkey in Asia Minor. 
And it would be helpful for you this morning before you leave to take these study notes, fold them up once, and then slip them in your back of your Bible, because not only are you going to need them this morning, but in subsequent Sundays as well. And we won't do this every Sunday throughout Revelation. From time to time we might do it, uh, but this one will be for the next couple of weeks, and it gives us a gentle introduction to Revelation. And so that's why they're there this morning. Two of our Sunday school classes in a trial approach will be following our sermon study series on Sunday morning in their Sunday school. And if you wish to uh, follow with them, you can go on to the church website right on the front page. It says Revelation, Majesty and Mystery. If you click on that page, not only will you get the study notes, but you'll get the questions that these folks are using in their Sunday school class. And so if you want to follow that on your own in the course of each week before a Sunday comes, please feel free to do that. And we may make this approach uh, available to other Sunday schools as we see how uh, this guinea pig approach in some way works out over the next few weeks. We'll be spending 10 weeks in Revelation and that will take us almost up to Palm Sunday because as most of you know, Easter is coming early this year, 27th of March, and you'll hear more about that as we move towards it. And we're studying chapters 1, 2, and 3, the seven churches in Revelation, and that's where we will be spending our next few Sundays. But this morning I wanted to begin with an illustration. And back in 2001, when the first Apple computer stores opened across the United States, 98% of the population did not have an Apple product. There were no iPhones, no iPads, and no, what was it, an iPod way back then just didn't exist. But as time went on, Apple became, according to the Fast Company magazine, Apple became the most successful retail store in all of history. And recently, one of the vice presidents who was in charge of retail sales was asked, why over the last 14 years has it grown from an entity that we were very unfamiliar with to one of the best retail stores in history? And this is what he said, and I found this absolutely fascinating. He said, people have really grown to love our stores because we are more than a store. We are a place to belong just after Christmas, I was wandering around uh, the Haywood Mall, and sure enough, I went into the Apple Store, and it was packed with assistants everywhere, giving advice, teaching. Folks are there with all of their new gadgets, learning, and of course, growing in their understanding of an Apple product and how to use it. And it was fascinating to see all of that take place. And I'm using that illustration for this purpose. Back in the fall, we spent 10 Sundays in a series called Contagious Church. And during that series, again and again, we tried to define what a contagious church is like. And some of the principles we discovered back in the fall, we will see again here in these seven churches in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation. Because those biblical principles were applicable in the first century and are as every bit applicable today. And if you were with us back in the fall, we said that a contagious church is first and foremost a place of grace. Secondly, it's a place of learning. Thirdly, it's a place of 
endurance. Because on a Sunday morning, from time to time, we will dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the Scriptures. We'll ask some difficult and some personal questions. But most of all, we hope that faithfully we will encourage each other to grow in our faith, to persevere and endure. And then finally, we said, a contagious church is a place of engagement with God. And that sense of engagement with God is exactly what happens here in Revelation chapter 1. John the Apostle engages with Christ in a way he did not think possible. And that's a remarkable thing to say, given who John is. And we'll see all that as we get further and further into our study this morning. But my trust and prayer this morning as we begin this new series is this, that over these next ten weeks together, you will want to be here on a Sunday morning. You will come prepared, opening up the book of Revelation, taking notes, engaging with the living God, seeking to grow in your faith, in order that you will come to the understanding that here at First Presbyterian, this is where you belong. So having said all of that, Let me give you an introduction to Revelation. Now, as is always the pattern, when we begin a new series of studies on a Sunday morning, we take a moment or two, in fact, it's probably about five minutes, to introduce the book, and we'll do that again this morning. We won't do that each Sunday, but we will today. There are two approaches to Revelation, and in my preparation this week, I thought, what is the best way to highlight or in some way to characterize those approaches and they became a little complex so I thought I would rather read them to you rather than try and do them off the top of my head. And the first approach is this, that we convince ourselves that revelation is a bewildering, incomprehensible, opaque book packed with complex imagery, symbolism and apocalyptic writing And therefore, it's easier just to ignore it. And for most of my adult life, and to my eternal shame, that has been my approach. I thought to myself, it's just too difficult, it is too opaque. And so, I have tended to keep it to one side. The second approach is to get so immersed in the book of Revelation that the only way to understand the world and the contemporary culture and the history that's taking place at the moment is through a detailed, at times complex, analytical study of Revelation, which then allows us to understand contemporary history because it's reflected in Revelation. And so those are the two classical approaches to the book. One is to ignore it, minimize it, marginalize it. The other is to be obsessed by it. And each time we read the newspaper or watch an item on our news, we see Revelation reflected in it. Now having said that, we are probably going to take a little from both as we approach Revelation. And in that opening chapter, we discover that John tells us there are seven churches, which we read about in verses 9 and 10. And over these next few months, or few weeks rather, as we get into chapter 2 next Sunday morning, we'll look at the letter of Revelation as it relates to the church in Ephesus. Then we'll go to Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and towards the end of chapter 2, Thyatira, and chapter 3, Sardis, and then to the church in Philadelphia, 
and then latterly to Laodicea at the end of chapter 3. So that gives you a heads up as to where we're going. Having said where we're going, let's say a little more about the epistle itself. Here, as you know, in your notes, you will find we've said a word or two about the author. And the author is, for conservative scholars, the Apostle John. Some have suggested, because of the language, it couldn't possibly be John. But for most of us, as we read the epistle, we'll understand this, that the writer has a very distinct knowledge of Jewish background. In fact, on over 400 occasions, he alludes to the Old Testament throughout these chapters. So the writer had a very real working knowledge and understanding of Judaism. Secondly, the writer was well known to the seven churches as he simply introduces himself as John. He doesn't put himself on a pedestal in any way and say, I, John the Apostle, author of the Gospel and three New Testament epistles. None of that. He simply writes, I, John, because he was known to them. And so it's for those uh, reasons that conservative scholars hold to John as the author. Secondly, the date, probably around the year A.D. 95. Roman Emperor Domitian was in power in those days, and we'll discover a lot more about the Emperor and the Roman Empire as we move forward. Thirdly, the occasion. Why did John write? And John was writing for this reason, that across the Roman Empire, Domitian had insisted on emperor worship, and so there was persecution. Fifty years earlier, there was localized persecution for the church and Christians and their beliefs. But now, throughout the empire, persecution was being stepped up. And knowing that some of these individual families in Smyrna and Ephesus and Laodicea and Philadelphia, in all likelihood, will have had family members and friends arrested, persecuted, some put to death, John is writing with great pastoral concern to reassure the folks under persecution that the Lord will be there for them. He will encourage them and strengthen them for all that is coming their way. And so that's the occasion of the writing. The purpose is wrapped up very closely with that, of course, that they are living in difficult days. Their lives are threatened. And finally, you'll see a note there relating to the literary form. And the literary form of the book is apocalyptic. And apocalyptic literature has particular distinctives about it. Often, it is marked with rich symbolism and imagery, and revelation is certainly that. Classically speaking, apocalyptic writing was pessimistic, But there is a distinction between classical apocalyptic writing and Revelation because although Revelation is realistic, it is also optimistic as John is writing to encourage his readers. He's writing to strengthen, encourage and reassure the folks in these congregations. So that gives you an overall and very brief introduction to the epistle. So let's begin. 
I'm not going to begin at verse 9 where we read because I'm hoping to tackle the entire chapter today. And so we're going to start in the first eight verses, give you a very brief overview, and then spend the latter half in verse 9 and following. Now notice how John begins. The letter begins with a prologue, and it begins the revelation of Jesus Christ. And revelation is the word apocalypsis. And it means that which is unveiled or revealing. And from that word, of course, comes revelation. And it's revelation not so much of time and events and historical epic proportions, but it's a revelation about Christ. Now allow me please to stress that again and again, because one of the dangers over these next few weeks is this, that the temptation will be to say, well, here are all the great historical events prophesied that are still to come, and some of that, and a fair bit of it, is in fact accurate, of course, but that's not John's main purpose in writing. His main purpose in writing is to highlight, feature, and focus on Christ. And that's why he begins his epistle the way he does. He puts the focus right at the beginning. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. And we'll come to look at that in detail in subsequent Sundays. Sundays. So it begins, of course, with revelation. And then John moves to what we think of as typical writing from back then. Greetings and doxology, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And we're very familiar with the writings of Paul. Paul often begins this way, Paul and Timothy to the church in Corinth, to the church at Thessalonica. And here is John following that uh, typical pattern of antiquity, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And he begins, grace and peace to you. And this is when it becomes interesting. Please note, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and is to come. And that's a reference to God the Father, a reference to his presence in eternity past, a reference to his faithfulness to us at the moment, and also a reference to all of eternity yet to be. Him who was and is and is to come. And then John takes it a step further. Not satisfied with highlighting the Father, he then goes on to talk of the Holy Spirit and from the seven spirits before his throne. And when you first read that, the temptation is to say, Richard, it says seven spirits. How do you get the Holy Spirit out of seven spirits? Well, if you'll notice the footnote in the New International Version, you'll also see that a translation, a legitimate translation, is sevenfold spirit with a capital S. And back in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, you will read of the Holy Spirit and his attributes. And John is encapsulating all of that here. From the seven spirits before his throne and then from Jesus Christ. And so you have that triune flavor of Father, Spirit, and Son right here. And notice what he then goes on to say. Who is a faithful 
witness. The firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The firstborn from the dead, of course, is a reference to his resurrection. Ruler of the kings of the earth talks about his authority and his grandeur and his majesty. But why does he add in there from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness? Why does he say that? to this particular church in the year A.D. 95. Of all the things John could say, why does he say that? Because John recognizes that they are going through persecution. And he talks of Jesus as a faithful witness, saying this, that throughout his life, Christ followed the call of his Father upon his life. He neither moved to the left or moved to the right, but day by day, week by week throughout his life, he was focused on being faithful to the call of his Father. He was a faithful witness That word witness comes from the New Testament word for martyr. And now we begin to understand why John used it. Because in talking of Christ, he reminds his readers in these seven congregations that God has called us to be faithful, to follow him in obedience, and he will not give up on us, and he will not abandon us, and as we are faithful to him, he will be faithful to us. And that is strong language to these people who are facing persecution. The culture, society around them were trying to force out of them their Christian standards and belief, but they were resisting. And so John is encouraging them to be like Christ, to follow him. And then he goes further. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now, you may well be sitting there this morning and saying, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I'm fascinated by the introduction to Revelation and all that you've taught us about the author and the date and the occasion, the purpose, the literary forum and what you've shared with us so far. But allow me please to interrupt for a second because I need help this morning. Richard, let's assume that you can read my mind and it's only you and I here today and we're talking together in a deep and intimate manner. And the passage you have just read strikes me as distinctly odd. And not only odd, but bordering on not being true. Because the passage you read says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins. But Richard, quite honestly, it does not feel like that to me. I've been walking the Christian road for a number of years. And I have to tell you, here we are, January the 10th. I started the new year full of dedication, full of commitment. And my prayer for the new year was this that I would go deeper in my faith 
and I would come to know the Lord better this year. And the 1st and 2nd and 3rd of January all went well. But in the 4th, and as I started back to work, it seemed as if my normal routine and the busyness of life crept in, and somehow my relationship with him isn't any deeper than it was a year ago. And what is more, when the passage says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins, quite honestly, I would have to put my hand in my heart and say, it does not feel like that. It doesn't. Because one of my New Year resolutions was to deal with a particular sin in my life. And it's a sin I've wrestled with most of my Christian life. I feel it coming towards me. I'm aware of the temptation. And nine times out of ten, I simply give in. I give in because I've learned to live with it. I've learned to make excuses for it. But I'm at the stage now where I am determined that this year it no longer will have victory over me. I'm determined right now. Richard, please, please, before you go another step, help me please to understand how I can gain victory over this particular sin. Because it starts up here in my mind. And there are some days I'm not even thinking about it, and boom, within a fraction of a second, I am thinking about it. And I stop, and my mind begins to dwell on it. And I find it attractive. And I think, oh, this and oh, that. And before I know it, my mind is where it should not be. And it's drawing me in and drawing me in and drawing me in. And before I know it, I sin. I'm enticed by it, attracted by it, preoccupied by it. And before I know it, I've sinned. And yet John tells us he has freed us from our sins. How can I possibly get victory over this? Richard, answer that one question for me. How can I overcome this? Now please hold that thought because it is paramount in our study this morning. And before we go any further, let's answer it. Earlier this week, I spent a couple of days with colleagues in ministry, and we were talking along these lines, and one of the pastors there gave a very helpful illustration, and I thought to myself immediately, that is appropriate for our study in Revelation. And it was this. And if I asked you this morning, how many push-ups could you do? What would you answer? Choir, you know the congregation can read your minds at this point. So they're asking maybe five, maybe ten, looking at him, maybe fifteen, looking at him, maybe two. So that's where they are in their minds this morning. So my question is this. If someone was to say to you, how many push-ups could you complete when you are really dedicated and committed and determined to do as many as you can, and then you begin? And at the beginning, you start, of course, with dedication and commitment, diligent in your mind, ready to move forward. 
And then, of course, you begin to get out of breath. And then you realize you're not as strong as you thought you were when you last did push-ups. And then, of course, you get to the final two. And as you get to the final two, your arms are trembling. You make it down and all the way up. And then you stop. Then the person leans over and says in your ear, I will give to you here and now one million dollars cash if you can do one more push-up. I suspect 90% of us would try. Adrenaline would kick in. We would fortify our minds and say, a million dollars? What I could... I will try. And... You push out one more, arms trembling, muscles weakening, and then you stop. Then the person says, I will give you another five million if you can do ten. And you say, rightly, I can't. I can't. I'm exhausted. It is beyond me. I can't. In your spiritual life, when you get to the point that you say, I can't do this. I don't have the strength for it. I don't have the faith for it. That's the point where Christ takes over. That's the point of trust when He enables you to go to a place you could not go before. And over this last year, how many times on a Sunday morning has the Scriptures reminded us of this? That the same moral and supernatural power that rose Christ from the dead now lives in you. His Holy Spirit in all of His wonder lives in you. And when you stop trying, when you stop resisting temptation in your own power, that's when you realize the wonder and the spectacular truth of this passage. To him who loves us. It doesn't say has loved. It's not in the past, but in the present. To him who has loved us and freed us from sin. All sin in the past, all present, all future is gone, wiped out, forgiven, and He has given us the power to live for Him and by Him. And that's why John says, and this comes from He who was and is and still to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty. The Almighty! That's the point. And when we realize the wonderful, sustaining truth of all that John is telling us, that's when 
we surrender our lives, hand them over to Him, and say in all honesty and candor, Father, I cannot live for You in my own strength. I need Your strength. Renew me, refresh me, revive me, and allow me to live in the knowledge that You love us and have freed us from the power of sin. What a way to begin a new year. What a letter to get from the Apostle John in these churches wrestling with the social and cultural pressure and the persecution of the empire. He has loved us. He will not give up on us. He has freed us from the power and tyranny of our sins and we can live for Him when we live in Him and not by our own strength. Now, having said all of that, we still have the rest of the chapter to go, and I'll quickly try and wrap it up in the next three or four minutes. So the next time you're tempted to think that the book of Revelation is complex, full of imagery, symbolism, and opaque, it is, but there are also practical lessons that we can learn from and live in the light of. And then John takes us into the second part of the chapter. And at verse 9, he writes, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The Apostle John had been living in the town of Ephesus. He, of course, was very familiar with the Apostle Paul who had ministered there for three years. And because of John's testimony and his ministry as a Christian leader, he was exiled by the mission to the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos is in the Aegean Sea. It's about 37 miles off the coast of present-day Turkey. I visited it with a group from the congregation about three years ago when we followed the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. And having been in Patmos, it really is a spectacular place to visit. And here is John on the Lord's Day, caught up in a vision of spiritual ecstasy. And he is in the presence of the living God. And God grants to John a vision of the risen Christ. And the passage is quite clear. His voice is like that of a trumpet, piercing, overwhelming. And as John turns and looks at this image of the risen Christ, his hair is as white as snow. His entire image is like looking into the brilliance of the sun. It is utterly dazzling. His voice, he says, sounds like roaring water. I imagine it's like standing next to the Niagara Falls. It dominates everything and anything. And there, what is Christ, and how does John respond to seeing the risen Christ? What does he say? Verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. Why? Because John was getting a glimpse of Christ as he had never seen before. And remember who John was. He had followed him for three years. He'd sat at meals with him. He'd listened to his teaching. He watched 
multitudes been impacted by the gospel and lives transformed. John was there on Easter Sunday morning. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, although dead. And that word saw is a small word, but has a large meaning. In fact, the last time that John used it was in John chapter 20, the end of his gospel. Peter and John had run to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. Peter looked in, saw the linen cloth, and then stepped back out and was trying to put together all that had taken place. He could see what had taken place, but he couldn't get his mind around it. And there's a particular Greek word for a quick, almost casual look at something. And then when John goes in, John writes, I saw and believed. And it's the same word as here. I saw and believed. And it's not a casual understanding. It's not a quick look. But it's about understanding, appreciation, awareness. And he sees the risen Christ in all of his transcendent majesty and glory. And he understands and he falls as though dead. Because he cannot take it in. Here was God in all his fullness unveiled majesty of God. And what does Jesus do in response to John? He reaches out and touches him. He touches him. Think of all of the grandeur and majesty. And he reaches out and touches John. Gracious tenderness. And he says to him, Do not be afraid I am the living one. I was dead. I am now alive forever and ever. And over these next few weeks, that will be your task on a Sunday morning. That we will come to this, a place of grace, a place of learning, a place of endurance, but primarily a place of engagement with God. A place where you belong My hope and prayer for each one of us is this, that this morning and in subsequent Sundays, we will feel the touch of Christ himself so that we leave renewed, refreshed, and ready to serve him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this staggering passage in the book of Revelation. Father, we fully recognize we have not dealt with it to the level we ought to. And so we ask that as we leave this morning, you would imprint upon our hearts and lives all that you have for us and enable us, please, to leave knowing that we can only live the Christian life when we live it through the empowering of your grace. Father, bless us, please. For we ask it in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.